I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. So it's finally here. The long-awaited Sue Gray report was published this week, and it was great stuff for journalists, with lurid details of fights, excessive drinking, wine splattered up walls, and Downing Street staff parting into the early hours during lockdown. But the question Tory MPs will be asking is what the public make of all this, and how it will affect their party's prospects in a future election. To discuss this, I'm joined by pollster extraordinaire James Johnson, As opinion research and strategy advisor, he ran polling for Theresa May before pivoting to the private sector as a founder of JL Partners. He now spends his time travelling up and down the country talking to ordinary voters and digging into what they really think about the state of our politics. We ran the rule over public perceptions of Partygate, the war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis in a conversation that may make difficult listening for supporters of the Prime Minister. Okay, James Johnson, thank you so much for joining me on the CapEx podcast. Uh, We're recording this on Wednesday, Sue Gray Day. It's finally here. So I'm sure we'll have a lot to cover about that. But I thought we might start by talking a bit more generally about polling. Um, So you've worked in Downing Street. I mean, it's a common refrain from ministers that the only poll that really matters is a general election. But from your experience, how much are ministers' decisions influenced by day to day what the numbers are telling them? So polling is there when Downing Street is operating outside of election time to do a number of things. It helps them realise crucially how to message their policies and how to reach out to uh, the public in ways that the public understand. So if the government's doing a big announcement on the NHS, for example, then they'll commission pollsters to go and find out what people feel about the NHS, to test messages on how they're going to frame that message on the NHS, and to basically get a sense of how they best deliver their, their plans. There is another element, of course, which is how well are we doing, um, what issues are driving voters, um, and you know how is the PM and so on perceived. And that varies really to the, to the degree to which the Prime Minister is interested in the polling. Um, I mean, certainly when I was doing polling for Theresa May, I'd be giving her uh, regular updates on sort of what the public thought, what the public thought about wider issues, including her. And often in meetings, I would you know, say what the public thought and someone would say, well, it's all very well and good, but we're completely ignoring it. <laughs> and that's actually quite a healthy place for a prime ministers to be, I think. I think there might be some signs um, that perhaps this uh, administration is a little bit more focused on the polling uh, perhaps than others. But yeah, I think polling works best in Downing Street when it's one part of a number of uh, views and options that are set forward in, in particular meetings. Sometimes listened to, sometimes not. 
Yeah, you sort of touched on it, but do you think there's a danger um, that polling can sometimes have kind of distortionary effects? It can make politicians pursue perhaps more short-termist or more popular ideas, especially perhaps at a time like, like now when we're in a bit of a crisis? Yeah, I think poorly interpreted polling can. Um, I think that polling is always there to provide a view of where the public are, and that is really important in democracies. The Prime, uh, Prime Minister and parties remain in touch with where the public are. But if you just interpret a poll uh, very literally, you can actually end up not only doing short-termist and reactionary things, but also actually doing things that are not politically helpful for you. I mean, a good example is saying, you know, well, uh, you know, look, we just want to, um, uh, you know, have a, you know, uh, more more spending now um, on a particular thing. If you'd have listened to that in 2010 to 2015 Parliament, which a lot of people were saying in polling, uh, then uh, the government would have not had that wider message about economic responsibility and and you know the longer term the longer term view. So uh, I think sometimes you have to actually not listen to polling in order to deliver uh, other things. Another great example is on housing. You know, if you listen to polling, you probably never build another house ever again. Um, you know, the public oppose building homes close to them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've all seen we've all seen that data. But actually, if you take the longer view, well, we're going to build houses now in order to give voters the prosperity they need uh, and they're more likely to vote for us in the future because of that, that's a much better political uh, prospect, even though if you literally interpreted the polls, you probably come with a different answer. Mm. Um, and what, what makes a good poll and what makes a bad poll, would you say? Well, I think it's, uh, it's all about the questions you ask. Um, you don't want to ask any leading questions. Uh, you don't want to ask questions that look like you're trying to get a particular answer from a voter. Voters tend to be able to figure that out pretty quickly. Um, and you want to then be able to have something that is actually, you know, going to tell you something that the public polls aren't. Um, I think a lot of people assume that private polling, when it gets talked about in terms of number 10, is some sort of, you know, cryptic, you know, extra, you know, super duper way of forecasting. Actually, it tends to do be run in the same way that the public polling is. So it doesn't tell you that much about voting intention and about particular voter groups. What it can tell you is how to message things, how to position things and try to try to work out where the public might go next. The best sort of, you know, the best sort of uh, way that the public opinion research worked for me when I was in number 10 was as a kind of live feed. We had focus groups that took place every couple of weeks mm. with swing voters around the country. And it gave you that sense of where the public were on things, what they thought, what was important to them, how they felt about government and politicians in general. And it was that sort of, you know, sense of the live feed that I was then able to relate to the prime minister um, that was you know, grounded in proper opinion research rather than just what she was hearing in the constituency on the doorstep or what other MPs were getting in their post bags. That was a really valuable insight, I think. Do you find that polls ever influence polls? You get a sense that they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm just thinking about Theresa May calling the snap election when she was riding high. People thought she was incredibly popular. We had election leaflets saying that Theresa May's team and then she started plunging and it sort of became a cycle. Do you think that that that's, that's can be a feature of our politics sometimes? Again, I think it's the interpretation of it. Uh, the 2017 election campaign, um, looking back at that and the uh, poll, polling uh, firms that were involved with that, um, there was a very literal reading of some of the focus group research. They went out, they went and did research that showed that you know, Theresa May was uh, incredibly popular, which she was at the time, um, and their immediate response was, let's send her everywhere and put her name on the side of the bus. Actually, what the polling is about is not just doing that literal read across, but it's actually saying, okay, we know Theresa May is popular. Why is that? Why is her brand the way it is? Why do voters like her? And let's maximise 
those attributes. Instead, it was that very literal read across. But polls can influence other polls. A another great example, uh, going back to the 2017 election, but also the 2019 election too, is if voters feel that another party can actually win, it changes their behaviour. A lot of voters in uh, 2017 actually voted for Corbyn and voted for Labour, we found when we did the analysis afterwards, because they thought he didn't have a chance in of winning. Come 2019, very different picture. Voters realised there was a threat of Corbyn becoming Prime Minister, and they, you know, for other reasons as well, significantly abandoned him. Let's move on to uh, the polls we'll be looking at today and over the next few days. How do you think that Partygate, the Sue Gray report, it reveals 16 events that took place in Downing Street during lockdowns where people were drinking, they were vomiting, they were fighting, they were splashing wine up the walls. The Prime Minister attended many of these uh, and officials planned them in advance and they knew that this was dodgy because they said, I think we got away with it. How do you think the public is going to react? I think the public has pretty much known a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. since about mid-January, and I think they've made up their mind on it. I don't think this new material is going to change their minds too much because they decided in mid-January that the parties were wrong. They decided in mid-January that the Prime Minister uh, was involved in them. Um, and they've decided since then uh, that he has lied um, numerous times since. So I think that, that the issue of Partygate is going to recede a bit now. Um, I think voters have made up their minds on it. I think lots of voters are very keen to get onto other issues. Where some Tory MPs are making a mistake is assuming that because it's fading in, in, in salience, that means it's fading in the impact it's had. And actually, the impact on Boris Johnson's brand very much remains. And I have not seen that change since mid-January for the better, and I find it hard to see how that will improve now in the run-up to the next election. So you'd say it's kind of a permanent hit to his popularity? That That's my view, and I think that you see that in his polling ratings in regards to Keir Starmer, and you see that in his polling ratings in regards to what people view as his strengths. In the 2019 election, Boris Johnson didn't get elected because he was this great trusted figure, because he was, you know, the whiter than white person who was, you know, always going to tell the truth and be the moral bastion. They voted for him because they thought he was strong. They voted for him because they thought he was the guy that would get things done. And they voted for him because they thought he would deliver in their local area. The strong man, in their view, has now become weak. Mm. Um, the person who could be trusted to get things done is now the guy that lies to them uh, behind their backs and to their faces. Um, the person who they thought, you know, could be the person they would laugh along with is now the person laughing at them. So I think those USPs that he went into the 2019 election with, those unique selling points, those strengths, have actually now become his weaknesses. And that's what's been so problematic about Boris Johnson's brand since mid-January. Now, some Conservative MPs say there's lots of time to go to an election. Maybe he'll be able to turn it around. My answer to that is, is that we had a period of about two and a half months after the invasion of Ukraine. He had a situation which could not have really been better domestically and politically. He had a situation where he was backed almost universally by his MPs. He had a situation where he was being praised to high heavens by the most popular man on earth in, in, in Zelensky, president of Ukraine. And still, the fundamental view of his brand in the focus groups and, in, and underneath the sort of, you know, the, the detail in the polls did not change a bit. So I failed to see how that is going to improve, especially when there are actually even more landmarks on this party gate affair to come, mm. uh, whether it's in terms of by-election, possible by-election defeats, and of course the Privileges Committee investigation too. 
Do you think that that's a, a Boris problem or a Conservative Party problem? Do you think the, uh, I think you described in an article recently, the sort of toxicity of his brand risk damaging the Conservative Party's wider prospects? Do you think there's a way back for the party to kind of recover from this? So I think what is very interesting in the research right now is that the Conservative Party brand is actually relatively buoyant. Um, and that's largely because of Labour weakness too. So what the Conservative Party in and of itself is not what voters have a problem with. I think you saw part of that in the local elections. The local elections were bad for the Conservatives, and I think they show a real problem for the Conservatives. But they also weren't a complete wipeout like in the 1990s, when the Conservative brand almost became so bad that people couldn't even bring themselves to vote for, for it in local elections. We're not in a situation like that. I think if you were to see a new leader of the Conservative Party, I think you would see the Conservative Party go back to polling, a polling lead almost overnight. Um, because fundamentally, I think people are still not convinced by Labour on the economy, and they're still not convinced by Labour on things like immigration and on crime. And they're certainly not that convinced by Keir Starmer. The problem is the toxicity of Boris Johnson and his leadership means that voters, even though they don't think much of Starmer, think he's better than him. And I think, you know, come an election, I don't think we're going to see a Blair star wipeout for the Conservatives, but I think we very much could see people saying, look, we need a change. I can't vote for this guy. Keir Starmer's, you know, ultimately bland, but an easy person to vote for if you want change. And I think that that could mean that the Conservatives are deprived of a majority. What are the kind of attributes that people in your focus groups talk about when they talk about Keir Starmer? What do they like about him? What do they dislike? You get an, a, an epic shrug, really, when you ask about <laughs> Keir Starmer. You know, you get, he's bland, um, he's boring, um, some worry that he's weak, it's hard to be more, more damaging for him. Uh, people describe him as a standard politician, uh, rather than somebody with particularly new or someone who's got plans and a vision. But as I say, you know, a shrug might just be enough for Keir Starmer. Um, he's not seen as the threat that, Keir, that, that, that Jeremy Corbyn was seen as in 2019. That, that means that it's easier for Conservatives to swap back to Labour in places, in seats in the North and Midlands that the Tories won for the first time. It also means that it's easier for Conservatives in the South to switch to the Liberal Democrats because there's not that threat of letting Corbyn in through the back door like there was last time round. And I did a recent focus group in Tiverton and Honiton um, and what we saw there uh, with swing voters um, was four of the six voters we spoke to would choose Keir Starmer over Boris Johnson still. Now, that is a very small sample. Clearly, it's not designed to be a poll in any way, in any way. but we've seen other polls from opinion and other things saying that actually, when they're given that forced choice, a lot of those Tory-leaning voters are still going for Keir Starmer over Boris Johnson, and that opens the door for them to defect in a much more straightforward way than in, previous, than in recent elections. And what about Boris's potential leadership rivals? Who do you think might be the breakthrough if there were to be a challenge before the next election? Well, this, like. Yeah, well, this is certainly the, the problem from Conservative MPs' perspective, that you know there is no clear uh, successor, there is no clear challenger that's polling um, remarkably well. When you actually look at who voters currently rate best out of the Cabinet and out of leading Conservatives, uh, it's actually Sajid Javid um, who comes uh, top with a uh, sort of uh, uh, just about uh, negative approval rating. Um, but you also get some others... Uh, come through come through as well. I think the key point on that is, is that every one of the major leadership contenders that get spoken about poll better than Boris Johnson. Um, and I am of the view, um, based on everything I've said in terms of that fundamental damage that's been done to Boris Johnson's brand, uh, that 
almost any of those leadership contenders, in fact, I think any of those major leadership contenders uh, would perform better in a general election um, than Boris Johnson. Um, and I think almost all of them also have a much greater chance of winning majority as well. Gosh, if Boris Johnson's listening to this, that's going to be difficult yeah. news for him. I wonder if you think events could take this over. So we, we're now having this massive cost of living crisis. It's really going to f- affect people right in their pockets. And we were talking about energy bills going up by £800. Do you think that that could potentially move this toxicity of Boris's brand off the agenda? Or no, in fact, does it add to the impression of a political class that's just out of touch with ordinary people? I think that's absolutely right. Uh, Luke Trill did a focus group earlier this week um, and he found that Partygate has become intertwined with this mm. cost of living issue in that voters feel that the Conservatives are out of touch on the former or have proven themselves to be out of touch on the former and, 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 are, and are now showing themselves uh, consequentially to be out of touch on the cost of living. Um, I think that some of the measures they announced may mitigate that, um, but ultimately uh, that it is going to be very hard for them to turn that into a success story. Um, so I don't see you know, the Boris brand situation improving on that. Uh, the, the Conservatives do have dividing lines of Labour that they can use. There is still a lot of distrust of, on Labour and the economy. And although Labour lead very significantly on the cost of living, on that question of the broader economy, the Conservatives in some polls are behind, but in others do retain an edge. Um, on immigration, on crime, the, you could see the Conservatives using powerful dividing lines with Labour. But what I would say to Conservatives listening, and particularly any Conservative MPs listening, is that you can have the best policies in the world. You can have the best things that resonate most with voters. If Boris Johnson's name is on the tin of those policies, they now fall flat with the swing voters that matter. Because the swing voters have made up their minds that Boris Johnson can't be trusted to deliver these things. It's a little bit like the Corbyn phenomenon in 2019. People said, He's going to get a great manifesto. He's going to get policies that really resonate and work. And actually, if you polled the individual policies, they quite liked them. Free broadband, for example. Mm. When it was associated with Corbyn's name, it was in the dirt because they basically thought this guy can't deliver them. I think we're seeing a similar, not quite a stark, but a similar phenomenon with Boris Johnson, which undermines the credibility of a lot of those policies. You know, if you if there was an election, there's not an election right now, but if there's an election next month or an election as there is in these in these seats of Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton, you know, if you're if you're looking at the data uh, and you're thinking who do we send there, the last person you send there is Boris Johnson due to his you know approval ratings. I can't see how that's going to be sustainable come a general election. One more thing to very quickly add on that is we've had a recent example of a policy which actually on the face of it does appeal to a lot of those red wall voters in the immigration plan on Rwanda. Uh, it's caused a lot of consternation in Westminster, but go and tell some of these uh, new Conservative voters in places like Bolton and places like Wakefield about it, and they quite like the idea. But when I talk to them about it being Boris Johnson's idea, they turn around and they say, oh, it's not going to happen then, is it? Mm. And that's a very dangerous place to be. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ministers like to say, look, what people really care about, they don't care about the, the soap opera stuff. Uh, they care about the cost of living or or whatever it might be, the day-to-day stuff of politics. In your focus groups, what do you find people do talk about the most? It's absolutely cost of living at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from those who are less affluent, it's a real discussion of, well, it's a real issue of I might not be able to pay next month's electricity and gas bills. Um, so that is a really pressing issue for them. With slightly more affluent voters, um, who do tend to be in more in the swing voter category, so the middle income voters, we call them C1, C2 uh, voters, uh, people who are in uh, skilled blue collar jobs or unskilled white collar jobs, uh, they are um, saying things uh, like, well, I might have to cut back on a holiday, or I might not be able to get my kids, you know, uh, the Christmas present that I promised them. So even if it's not, you know, taking people's livelihoods away, uh, further up the income scale, it's having an impact too. So that's a huge thing. Um, crime uh, is a big issue that's always been bubbling away over the last few years, particularly in the immediate aftermath of, of the pandemic and all the worst of the pandemic uh, coming up coming up a fair bit. And in a lot of these seats, which were won for the first time by the Conservatives, immigration has not gone away. And I think there is a real danger amongst some of the sort of Twitter and, and, and polling and political science world to say that immigration has disappeared as an issue it has gone down people's agenda in terms of how much they care about it. But I'm telling you, if you go and do focus groups with those new Tory voters who are absolutely key to the next election in these working class areas in the North and the Midlands that the Conservatives won, they certainly still care about it. And they feel that the Conservatives have not made the level of progress they should have uh, on control and reduction of immigration. So they still trust the Conservatives more than Labour, but I think that's going to be an issue that continues to affect our politics even if some people like to pretend it's gone away. Do you think it's control or do you think it's reduction? Because obviously there's a certain kind of Brexiteer that likes to frame global Britain as being very open to immigration, just being able to to have control of the people it takes in. Um, And then there's obviously another view that it was a slightly more uh, isolationist uh, decision than that. What's what's your view? Well, I think overall, I think 
it is more about control. Um, but as I say, when it comes to those particular swing voters, new Tory voters in 20, from 2019, they tend to be older, tend to be slightly more socially conservative, um, they, and, and they tend to be more working class uh, and have voted leave. Those voters, um, it is about control and reduction. Um, and I think that's a really key thing. You know, majority of the public still want to see uh, immigration reduced. And you know, the extra number added onto that is an extra 20 or so percent saying they want it to stay the same. Mm. Well, you know, the figures clearly show that it's not staying the same either. So I think there is still a very large number of people in the country who want to see it reduced. But as I say, I think particularly for those swing voters, it is about control alongside reduction. And if, vote, and if politicians don't realise that, then they run the risk of actually isolating themselves from, from those voters and also increasing the risk of somebody else coming along, just like Nigel Farage did in the mm. early 2010s, and saying, they're not addressing it, I will. So do you think the, that kind of leave-remain divide that we saw in the 2019 election, that the, the kind of coalition that the Conservatives managed to build to win that, still is a dividing line in British politics? It, it, it's certainly the Brexit divide that was a manifestation of a, another divide mm-hmm. between so very socially liberal, very socially conservative. I think those things do still matter. But the really important thing for the Conservatives to understand is that the 2019 election, they did so well, and Boris Johnson smashed it out of the park because they managed to get Lee voters but in the North and Midlands and elsewhere, while also keeping their voters in the South. The Conservatives made progress in a lot of these southern southern places in 2019. I think the realignment, as people call it, sometimes gets slightly overcooked. People assume the Conservatives went backwards massively in the south and went forwards in the north. But actually, if you look at the swing across the country, it went towards the Conservatives just by greater numbers in the Leave voting areas. What they did is they got the Leave voters and they also kept the Remain voters. And that coalition is going to be really important to retaining uh, conservative, uh, a conservative majority at the next election. If they misunderstand that and think, we have to go gung-ho after the Leave voters, we have to talk about culture wars, um, which by the way, that, that even you know, the Leave voters don't much care for, for either, um, or we have to bring up Brexit again, they're gonna misunderstand that and actually isolate not only the Leave voters, but the Remain voters in the South too. I mean, that kind of felt like the, that narrative that you just described is what played out in the locals, you know, absolute devastation in more socially liberal areas like London uh, and sort of not as bad in the Red Wall. Was that how you characterise it? I think that uh, the local elections um, showed us that actually things are pretty bad in the Red Wall too for the Conservatives. Right. Labour is not storming to victory there. Labour is not getting Blairite levels of victory there, you know, clearly. Um, but if, what happened in the Red Wall is the change was on 2018. And in 2018, Labour had the Red Wall. And they had it by quite a significant margin, actually. Some of the margins in the Red Wall um, under Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 are some of the highest vote shares that those areas really saw since the early 2000s. So for Labour to be holding still on that, in some areas making some progress, in some areas slightly falling behind, is actually a pretty good position for Labour to be in um, if they if they want to deprive the Conservatives of a majority and potentially be the largest party. Is it enough for a Labour majority? Is it enough for a Labour, you know, storming to victory and landslide? No. But Labour doesn't need that in order to form a government in the next election. So I think, yes, very worrying results for the Conservatives in the South, but actually very worrying in the North and the Midlands. If you look at the swing towards Labour at those local elections, 
the Conservative to Labour swing only, that swing was greater in the Leave areas than the Remain areas. And that really you know, under, un, underlines for me the risk that the Conservatives have in misunderstanding those locals, thinking they're all okay because of some early results on the night or comparing it to 2019 rather than 2018 and not realising actually the gravity of the problem in those Leave voting red wall areas. I'm interested also in what you were saying about the culturals because it does feel like the government pursues this because it thinks it's popular. But you're saying that's not really the case. Yeah, and I'm, I, I do wonder whether that's slightly unfair on the government. And I think that they, I think there are people in government who really, you know, believe in this fight and, you know, really believe in, you know, changing things on, you know, not going too far on things like trans rights and, and flying the flag and, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, um, and BBC. Uh, but I just don't think anyone who does focus groups and polling in a serious fashion could argue that these are relevant vote, relevant issues to voters. I mean, when you sit down, when you ask, firstly, when you ask in the polls, these issues are really, you know, outside of the top five, outside of the top 10, often outside of the top 15 or 20 issues that people care about. Uh, when you sit down in focus groups, a lot of people say about trans rights, for example, their initial response is, actually much more simple than the debate in, in, in social media and amongst uh, people in Westminster. It's just, yeah, live and let live, mm. you know, um, let, them, let, let people do what they want to do. Many of them don't even realise there's a debate. Um, I did a focus group recently um, and talked to voters for about 90 minutes on trans issues. And afterwards, you know, this chap, you know, he couldn't believe he'd spent, he said he'd spent about 90 seconds thinking about <laughs> it, you know, never known before, never, know, never mind 90 minutes. So look, do these issues, does political correctness annoy people? Yes, it does. You know, do, you know, political parties who go too far on it, um, like some MPs in the Labour Party, run the risk of isolating their voters? Absolutely. Is it going to be the thing that decides the next election? Even for a small number of voters? I can't see it. Hmm. And what, so we've talked about cost of living. Uh, what would you say would be the other issues that will decide the next election? So I think it's going to be a cost of living. Uh, I think it's going to be the economy and who can handle the economy best. I think that's going to be an absolutely key thing. And as I say, that is where Labour is a little bit weaker um, uh, than on the cost of living. Um, I think it's going to be, uh, well, I think I think on a more local level, immigration and crime are going to play, any, are going to play mm. a role. I think you'll see quite a big war on social media on things like immigration and crime, um, you know, punted out by uh, the Conservative headquarters uh, in some of these more leave voting areas where they might be squeamish about Labour's record and Labour's record in votes on some of those issues. I think that's going to be more of a ground war thing, a social media war than a big air war issue. The other thing I, I think is going to be the plan for the future. Um, I think we sometimes exaggerate how much voters look back and judge how a party's done already. Um, they're going to be looking forward to what comes next and having that positive vision and having those positive plans is going to be very important. But the main thing sitting underneath all of that, not to sound like a broken record, is leadership and credibility. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm really, as a Conservative pollster, worried about the Conservative Party's chance at the next election with Boris Johnson's leader, because I think that credibility has been undermined. And like I say, it's not enough to see huge droves going over Labour to Labour, but it's enough to say, I'm not doing that, I'm not voting for him, um, so I'll either stay at home uh, or I'll give Keir Starmer a try. And it's difficult to see how you can have that kind of vision for the future that you were talking about if there's not a leader that you can trust. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you've actually seen past leaders struggle with that. Mm. Um, if you think about, if you think back to the 2010 election, last time we saw a change in government, um, Gordon Brown 
I'm sure, spent lots of time talking about his vision for the future. Do you remember any of that? <laughs> Absolutely not, because his, you know, his, his credibility was spent. Um, and I think we're going to see a similar uh, thing with Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, where even if they have good ideas, the credibility is not there to the same degree. Um, but I want to be really clear, you know, I'm not saying that we're at, on the cusp of a 1997-style defeat, but you really don't need to be. And that's why I'm so worried about the electoral situation for the Conservatives right now. All of the polls that we've seen this year and the real results in the local elections suggest we're headed to hung Parliament territory. The Conservatives can lose their majority while being ahead in vote share over Labour. Mm. So it is a very... Once you get out of that landslide majority territory and you get to hung Parliament territory, it's a very small, narrow of margins, depending on whether you're going to end up with a Conservative government or whether you're going to end up with a Labour government supported by the SNP and the Lib Dems. And that is very worrying for the Conservatives. Uh, so that's why I see I see all this, and I look at all my polling data and, election, and the election results, and I think the bigger gamble, to me, seems to be sticking with the current leadership rather than moving away from it. Um, of course, it may be that Conservative MPs decide to take that gamble and we'll see whether I'm terribly wrong. Yes, well, <laughs> I mean, that's the poll in itself, isn't it? It's sort of, will they get to the 54 yeah, and look, holsters have certainly been very wrong on things before. But, uh, uh, and I, I know I'm not sitting here forecasting the next election, but I do think it's very hard to see Boris Johnson winning a majority um, in, in, in the current situation. I know you just said that you weren't going to forecast the next election, but I'm going to ask you, uh, how do you think, if you had to put a number on it, uh, these by-elections that are coming up are going to play out? Uh, well, I think, there's a, uh, I think there's a good chance they, uh, uh, they lose... Uh, Wakefield almost I'd say that's a very high chance the big question in Wakefield is by how much uh, and I think that a lot of um, the sort of view out there is that it might be sort of you know a small margin by about sort of four to five points uh, look I haven't been polling Wakefield I don't know Wakefield um, in, in, inside out what I would say is that based on the current swings that you can see uh, you would expect uh, Wakefield to go by a significantly larger margin than that. So if that happens, I think that may cause some problems for Conservative MPs. Tiverton and Honiton, a bit harder to say. I did a focus group there, as I said, very negative. Um, the the way best way to sum it up is a voter who a Conservative 2019 voter who said, "I'm not voting Conservative because it would be endorsing Boris." Um, and that suggested to me, alongside the issues that people were talking about, that Lib Dems have a very good shot there. The big question is how many loyal Conservatives are there in that seat mm. who are actually pretty pro-Boris and actually going to vote Conservative, whatever. And uh, a focus group can't really tell you that. Uh, so um, that could be a lot tighter. Um, but the Lib Dems, you know, they could do a North Shropshire and just clinch it. And if you had to predict a future general election at this point? Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that, really is not, that really is a mean question. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, look, if there was an election, you know, you know, next next month and I uh, you know based on all the polls that we have now I think it would be very clear and based on the focus groups that give you that slight sense of what's going on underneath the polls I think it'd be very clear we'd be heading to a hung parliament and I think we'd probably be heading to a situation where Labour was the largest party in a, in a hung parliament um, for all of the reasons that I've spoken about uh, if I had to look forward to 2024 and you assume a bit of recovery and you you know you assume uh, uh, you know some of those midterm effects recede I still don't see the Conservatives getting a majority because I think that, as I say, I think that the leadership issue for Boris Johnson is is so integral now to hit and dragging the Conservatives down. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I think that although people are not excited about Labour, they're a much easier vote than they were, they were in 2019. Don't underestimate how tight the margin is in so many of these constituencies that the Conservatives won in 19, or certainly how much they could swing back and how volatile voters are now. Um, yeah, under the current situation, I find it hard to see how Boris Johnson wins a majority. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end on a grim note for Boris Johnson, but perhaps a happier one for Keir Starmer. James Johnson, thank you so much for joining me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.